go to Matthew chapter number 27, please. Book of Matthew chapter number 27 in the Word of God. I've already mentioned in Sunday school how much I appreciate the meetings throughout the week. So many churches are cutting back on their meetings, and I'm glad we're going to get to be here through Friday night. I'm also glad that I get to stay in my house and preach every night. Hallelujah. Usually I'm traveling around. We're in our ninth year of being on the road in full-time evangelism. I'm in my 43rd year of preaching the Word of God. I pastored for nearly 30 years, and so uh, we travel an awful lot. Wintertime is a little bit slow, but uh, so we, we've been in and out just a little bit. But, well, I'll tell you what, when you get to preach every night and stay in your own house, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so uh, since that's the case, and I enjoy that so much, I've decided to stay two and a half months, and uh, we'll be right here at Knobs Baptist Church. Amen. Matthew chapter number 27, you will recognize the place of the Scripture that we are about to read. We're going to begin in verse number 33. May we stand together, please, and give reverence and attention to the Scriptures. I read in the Word of God where they did that. When the Scriptures was opened up, all the people stood up. I figure if it's good enough in Bible times, it's good enough in our time as well. Matthew 27, verse number 33. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. Please notice that again. And sitting down... They watched him there as if the crucifixion of the sinless Savior was some type of a sporting event. They just sat down in a public place and they watched him there. From these verses, I'll introduce the thought of the message in just a moment. But first, let's bow our heads and our hearts together. I'd like to pray right now. Father, we bow before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of being here and recognize that before the foundation of this world, you and your foreknowledge knew who would be here today, who would be preaching, and what would be preached. And so, Father, we humble ourselves before thee and pray that your will would be accomplished in every heart and in every life for your honor and glory. I trust, Lord, that the folks that are here today have the mindset that we're going to mind you and obey you whatever you tell us to do. Please bring forth the fruit around these altars that would most glorify you and you alone, we pray. We are trusting you to save the lost. We are trusting you to revive the saint. Help us, Lord, to hear from heaven rather than from humans. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Would you be seated, please? We find that the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage of Scripture is being crucified, and the people gather around Calvary, and they just sit down, and they watch him there. If we were to back up to verse number 26, a verse that we did not read, you will find that before Jesus went to the cross, they first scourged him. We learn in Bible history that that was usually the case whenever an individual was condemned to death by crucifixion. 
crucifixion, they would first take them and they would scourge them. The scourging, they would take the individual and they would often strip them to the waist and tie their hands behind their back. Then they would tie them to some immovable object like a boulder, a stump, or a pole. And then the executioner would take a whip-like structure and at the end of the whip were strands of leather. And at the end of the strands of leather were sharp pieces of bone, sharp pieces of glass, acorn-sized pieces of lead. And they'd begin to thrash away and thrash away at the individual being scourged. Now the Jews had a custom, 40 stripes save one. That's 39 stripes. And they would endeavor to administer 13 stripes down the right side, 13 stripes down the left side, and 13 stripes down the middle. But ladies and gentlemen, the Romans had no such custom. And so they could thrash away and they could thrash away just as much as they wanted to. It was not uncommon for the individual being scourged for their body to wildly begin to convulge and contort out of control. It was not uncommon for the entrails of the body uh, to suddenly be exposed at the scourging. It was not uncommon for the individual being scourged to beg the executioner to go ahead and put them to death because they were in such excruciating pain. But our Savior, the sinless Savior, the lovely Lamb of God did not die at the hand of the scourging. They led him off and Jesus said, uh, No man taketh my life from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. They didn't have to force our Savior upon that cross. Maybe that cross was laying on the ground and Jesus willingly submitted himself to that cross and they drove the nails into his hands and into his feet and then lifted that cross up and slid it over into a hole and suspended between the heaven that he created and the earth that he created was Jesus Christ himself. We're told that when a person hangs on a cross because of the weight of gravity, it closes off the breathing tubes in their body. So in order to breathe, they have to push up with their legs and get some air and slump back down until they can't stand it anymore. Then they have to push up with their legs and get another breath of air and go back down. Have you ever wondered why it was when you read your Bible that when they wanted someone on a cross to go ahead and die, they would come along and they would break their legs. They would no longer be able to go back up for air. Isaiah said his visage was marred more than men. That means that by the time Jesus got to the cross, he did not even look like a man anymore. If you see these artists renditioning of Calvary, and if the man in the middle looks like a man, it's an unscriptural picture because Jesus had been so brutally beaten and the crown around his brow. By the time he got to the cross, Isaiah prophesied that his visage, his outward appearance, uh, he didn't even look like a man anymore. But there he was hanging on the cross. And the Bible says that the people gathered around Calvary and they just sat down and they watched him there. Well, from studying the word of God, we learned that as they sat down and watched him there, they was watching a supernatural display of several different things that we learn in the Bible. As they sat down and watched him there, first of all, they was watching a supernatural display of God's love for sinners. Maybe the most famous verse in all of the Bible is John chapter 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world. Hey, it doesn't say that he just loved the world. He so loved the world. 
world that he gave his only begotten son. You know the rest of the verse. As they sat down and watched him there, they was watching a supernatural display of God's love for sinners. Jesus said in John chapter number 15, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And the opening phrase of the very next verse is, Ye are my friends. Dear sinner friend here today, lost without God, we're not against you, we're for you. God Almighty is not against you, He's for you. He loves you so much that He sent His sinless Son to suffer and bleed and die on a cross. Listen, God Almighty loves you so much that He would rather allow His Son die on a cross than to let you die and go to hell. As they sat down and watched Him there, they was watching a supernatural display of God's love for sinners. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 9, in this was manifested. The word manifested means made known. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. As they sat down and watched Him there, they was also watching a supernatural display of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Your Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 21, For He, that's God, hath made Him, that's Jesus, for he hath made him to be sin, to be made sin for us, uh, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Somewhere along the line in your Christian life or while you've attended church, I'm sure that you've heard someone preach on the seven sayings of Christ on the cross of Calvary. We know that while Jesus was on the cross, he uttered seven different sayings. Have you ever stopped to think about that only one of those sayings was a question? Some of those sayings was instruction. Some of those sayings were declarations. But only one of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross of Calvary was a question. When Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I've been told, Brother Miller, all of my Christian life that we're not supposed to ask God why when we go through a hard time. Well, now, wait a minute. Is not Jesus our Lord? Is not Jesus our master, our pattern for living? He asked God why. If it's good enough for the Savior, I figure if it's good enough for the saint. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, the Bible has the answer to that question. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. As Jesus was on that cross, Hebrews 2.9 says, By the grace of God he tasted death for every man. It was there that he took upon my sin. It was there on the cross Jesus took upon your sin And he took upon the sin of the entire world And God the Father in his holiness Cannot look upon iniquity And so we find that he forsook his own darling son The Lord Jesus Christ In likely the darkest hour of his life And I say all of that to say this That as we take a look at Calvary And look at the suffering of the Savior And the forsake 
forsaking of the Father. As they sat down and watched him there, they was watching a supernatural display of just how exceedingly sinful sin is in a thrice holy God. You want to see how wicked sin is? You don't have to go out and look at the way people are living in sin. But if you want to know how wicked sin is, look at the price that had to be paid in order for sin to be forgiven, in order for you and I to be redeemed. It cost the suffering Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Therefore, as they sat down and watched Him there, they was watching a supernatural display of God's love for sinners and they was watching a supernatural display of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Now, you've been staring at me for a while. Let me have you turn to another verse in the Bible to make sure I'm not boring you to death and you're still awake. Hold your place here at Matthew 27 and turn to your right and go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, please. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. There's another thing that we learn as they sat down and watched him there in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, somewhat of a familiar verse, but think about it in light of Calvary. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Bible says, For the preaching of the cross, that's what I'm trying to do today, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish. Now those that perish would be lost people. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So as they sat down and watched him there, they was watching a supernatural display of victory over sin. I stand here and tell you, my dear friend, that you and I have victory over sin because of the body of Christ. We have victory over sin because of the blood of Christ. And we have victory over sin because of the book of Christ. You know that the Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. D.L. Moody said, This book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. So as they sat down and watched him there. They was watching a supernatural display of victory over sin. Thank God you and thank God sin don't have to be victorious over us but we can be victorious over sin. And I want you to know that I know that even as a child of God we do not come to the place where we uh, arrive at being sinless but as a new creature in Christ we ought to sin less. And less and less and less as they sat down. Hey, go back to Matthew. We were in Matthew chapter number 27. Back up a page or two and go to Matthew 26. There's something else that we learn here in Matthew chapter number 26. And we're going to pick it up in verse number 51. The angry mob has come after Jesus. And they're going to lead him away. And they're going to falsely accuse him, scourge him, and crucify him. But in Matthew 26, look at verse 51. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand. We know that this is Peter from studying other uh, places in the Bible. And drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of, of angels? Peter was going to defend the Lord. And he got his sword out, and Pete, Jesus said, Peter, go ahead and put your sword away. He said, Right now I can pray, and my father will give me more than twelve legions of angels. A legion is three thousand. 
So Jesus said, right now, though this angry mob has come and they're going to haul me away and falsely accuse me, scourge me, and condemn me to crucifixion, right now I could ask my father for 30, more than 36,000 angels and they would come and they would rescue me. But Jesus never asked for them. In another place of John 18, Jesus was in a garden and find that the angry mob came to him and Jesus said to the angry mob with swords and torches and staves, Jesus said, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Your Bible says that when Jesus said that, they all fell down backward. They got back up. And they did the same thing. And Jesus said, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. And, and, and my friend, here's my point. There was enough power in the word of the Lord Jesus Christ to wipe out that entire angry mob. But Jesus did not use the power of his word. Jesus did not ask for more than 36,000 angels. Why? Because Jesus Christ was dedicated to the will of the Father and he knew this was the will of God to be falsely accused, suffer, bleed and die and raise again the third day for my forgiveness, your forgiveness and for our redemption. Therefore, as they sat down and watched him there, they was watching a supernatural display of dedication unto God himself. Hey, wait a minute. You're right here in Matthew chapter number 26. Back up to verse number 48. In verse number 48, Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And, for, and of course we know that's Judas Iscariot. Verse 49, And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Now, Jesus is, is God. He knows everything that's taken place here. He knows everything that will take place. Jesus told ahead of time that Judas was going to betray him. So now the hour has come. Judas is betraying him. Jesus is going to be falsely accused, scourged, condemned to death. Look at verse number 50. And Jesus said unto him. Look at the name that he called him. Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then they laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now look, folks. If you and I knew ahead of time that an individual was going to falsely accuse us and betray us and it was going to cost us our life, when that situation finally presented itself unto us, I dare say the last thing that we would call that individual is our friend. But Jesus did because Jesus loved Judas Iscariot unto the very end. Wait a minute. How come Judas had to tell the angry mob, the one I kiss is Jesus. How come he had to identify him? Was not Jesus daily in the temple teaching and preaching the word of God? For over three years, was not Jesus going in and out Jerusalem and the other cities? Why did not wherever Jesus go, there was a great stir about him, whether good or bad. Some people loved him, some people didn't. Why was it? that Judas Iscariot had to point him out by giving him a kiss. Could it be that the disciples had been so long with him that they had become so much like him that the angry mob wasn't sure which one was Jesus and he had to be pointed out? Would to God we lived in a day 
were children of God, so lived like the Lord Jesus Christ that even a lost and dying world can identify us and say, There's go, there goes one of those Christ followers. There goes a Christian. And, oh, and so Judas, Judas betrayed the Savior with a kiss. Think about that. Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus is the door into eternal life, into heaven. Judas Iscariot got close enough to kiss the door, but he didn't go through the door and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He is still screaming in hell this morning. It scares me to death to think that a person could get so close to getting saved like Judas Iscariot and kissing the door of heaven but not going through himself. Judas kissed the door of heaven but didn't go through. Judas kissed the light of the world but is, in, but is perishing in eternal darkness. Judas kissed the resurrection and the life but he's not going to know the resurrection of the just. He kissed the way, the truth, and the life but Judas didn't get in the way. He didn't believe the truth. He didn't receive eternal life and it scares me to death to think that a person could get so close to knowing the Savior and getting born again but not following through and perish for all eternity in hell and ultimately the lake of fire as they sat down and watched him there they was watching a supernatural display of God's love for sinners as they sat down and watched him there they was watching a supernatural display of the exceeding sinfulness of sin as they sat down and watched him there they was watching a supernatural display of victory over sin dedication unto God let me give you another one as they sat down and watched him there they was watching proper attitude in service your Bible says in Hebrews 12 verse number 2 looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith here it is who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now I'll leave it to your pastor and theologians in our midst how it was that the Lord Jesus Christ counted the cross a joy. But that's what the Bible says in Hebrews 12 too. And so as they sat down and watched him there they was watching a supernatural display of proper attitude in service your Bible says in Psalm 100 verse number two serve the Lord with gladness not sadness not madness but with gladness the Bible says the key verse of the book of Philippians is chapter 4 verse number 4 rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice I'm sure I said it in Sunday school because I say it often I don't got to go to church this week I get to go to church this week and my dear friend proper attitude in service Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross there's other things that we could talk about they sat down and watched him there not only proper attitude and service but sat down and watched him there a supernatural display of the holiness of God the holiness of God demanded that sinless blood be shed in order for you and I to be saved as they sat down and watched him there they was watching a supernatural display of meeting the demands of God Isaiah 53 for he shall see the travail of his soul, that's God the Father, talking about Jesus, and be satisfied. Jesus satisfied the demands of God so that you and I could be born again. They sat down and they watched him there. Now I'm told, and there's probably people in this room that can verify it, that whenever a human being sees something traumatic happen to another human being, oftentimes it affects them emotionally. Oftentimes, I'm told that when a person 
Maybe they drive up on an automobile accident. Maybe they drive up on some horrific situation. And when one human being witnesses another human being going through a traumatic situation, I'm told that it affects them in such a way that oftentimes they're unable to eat for days afterwards because of what they saw. I'm told that oftentimes they're unable to sleep well at night because it troubled them so that because of what they saw. And I just can't help but wonder that these people that sat down and saw the brutal beating of the Savior and the, and the blood and the suffering of a human being that didn't look like a human being by the time he got on the cross. I wish it would have affected them spiritually and they would have got born again, but I can't help but wonder, did it affect them emotionally? As they went away, did they have trouble sleeping at night because of what they saw Jesus go through? Did they have trouble eating for days after Calvary because of what they saw Jesus go through? I don't know, but I know this, that as they wandered away from Calvary, and even if it did affect them emotionally... I'm sure there was a time that they was able to go ahead and eat their meals again. There was a time that they was able to go ahead and sleep well at night because as they wandered away from Calvary, they got over some of the things that they witnessed that day. Ladies and gentlemen, can I testify? I want to testify and say, by faith, I've been to Calvary and back. I've never been to Israel. I've never been to the Holy Land. I had a church right over here in Jerseyville, Illinois, where I pastored that they wanted to send me there, but they only was going to give me a one-way ticket. They wasn't going to let me come back. No, that's not true. But anyway, I've, I've, never, I've never been to the Holy Land. I've never been to Israel. But hey, I'm here to tell you, my dear friend, July the 13th, 1967, by faith, after somebody was preaching the Word of God, I made a trip to Calvary, and God changed my life that night, and I've never been the same. Amen. Hey, by faith, if you've been to Calvary and back and been born again, say amen. amen. But you know what I fear? I fear that though some of us have been saved for a number of years, that as time has gone by, we, like these people here, have wandered away from Calvary and we've gotten over some of the things that Jesus did for us that day that we got saved, like Pastor Miller talked about a while ago. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to keep Jesus on the cross. I know that he was buried and he rose again the third day. He walked the face of this earth for 40 days and then in Acts 1 ascended off the Mount of Olives and is sit down at the right hand of the Father. I'm not trying to keep Jesus on the cross. And I am not preaching this morning that you and I need to get born again and again and again and again. I'm just simply saying, is it an amazing thing? As time goes by, even in the lives of children of God, and we wander away from Calvary for what Jesus did for us on that day, we have a tendency to get over some things that the Lord did for us that day. You say, well, Brother Hart, how can you tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary? You can tell when they wander too far from Calvary because they don't love sinners like they used to. Remember when you first got saved? Remember how you wanted everybody to have what you have? Remember how that you told everybody, man, let me tell you what happened. Somebody knocked on my door and told me the most wonderful story that could ever be told. And I got saved and God changed my life. You told the boys down on the job and you said, hey, I want to tell you what happened to me when I went to church a couple of weeks ago. And they said, yeah, you told us yesterday. And you said, yeah, I know. And I'm going to tell you again today because you wanted everybody to have what you got 
from the hand of the Savior. Remember how you used to pray for friends and family? Remember how tears used to run down your street, your, your cheek? Remember how you used to carry tracks and pass them out at places that you go? Oh, but as time has gone by and we're still saved and going to heaven, but we've gotten over some of the things that Jesus did for us that day. And as we wander too far from Calvary, you can tell because a person don't love sinners like they used to love them. You can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because sin is not as exceedingly sinful as it used to be. I mean, after all, society accepts some things now. After all, liberal churches allow it to go on. I mean, those things that was wicked sin in our heart and our mind after we got saved, well, you know, maybe it's really not so bad. No, it's still bad in the eyes of God. We've just wandered too far from Calvary and we've gotten over something. Amen! Cheer up, folks. It'll get worse. Amen. You can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because sin is not as wicked as it once was. Nothing's changed with God. If it, if it was wicked back in the 1950s, I know that's ancient for some of y'all. And I know that's not ancient for some of y'all as well. Amen. It was wicked back in the 50s. Are you listening? It's still wicked in 2023 in the eyes of God. Nothing's changed with God. Nothing's changed with the Word of God. What's changed is the way we see it between our ears. And you can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary, because sin isn't as wicked as it used to be. You start justifying it, make an excuse for it. You can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because they lose their victory over sin. Now look, I got saved at eight years old, three days before my ninth birthday, July the 13th, 1967. God changed my life, and I've never been the same. I hate to admit that in my teenage years, I got away from God. I hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. For seven years of my life, if I could go back and relive, I would do it in a heartbeat. My family busted up. My mom and dad busted up. I'm not blaming that. I'm responsible for my own actions. But in the formative years of my life, for those seven years, even though I was raised in Sunday school, got saved at youth camp, faithful to church every week. In the formative years of my life, we went to church two times in seven years. And I was away from God as a young person. I saw things I should have never seen. I heard things that I should have never heard. I went to places that I should have never been. Later on, when I'm in high school, I wanted to get right with God but didn't know how. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I'm saying all that to say this. So, the Lord took me back. Thank God He did. I, I, as a senior in high school, I wandered in to a Baptist church in East Peoria, Illinois with the marks of the world all over me into that youth group. That youth group had more people in that youth group in the teen class, about the number of people, maybe a little bit more than what's in the congregation today, a church that ran over 1,000 people, Baptist church. I was so glad to be back in church. I didn't have any church clothes. Are you listening to me? I had pocket T-shirt, hip hugger, wide bottom, bell Levi's. Sorry for the mental picture. Oh, yeah, my mother saw she didn't go to church. My sister didn't go to church who I was living with. But she saw that I was serious about going to church. And it, it, my size, you don't just walk in and buy a suit off the rack. So she worked with somebody at Metamore Woodworking that made leisure suits. She had a leisure suit made for me. Come on now, navy blue, 
double white stripe on the lapel and around the collar. You know, the silk shirt where you wear the collar on the outside. Oh, yeah, man, I'm strutting my stuff. Hallelujah. Amen. And I come in there instead of having my blue jeans and pocket t-shirt. And I don't care. Come to church in blue jean pocket t-shirt. And I, but I got me a leisure suit now. Amen. And here I come in there. I was just glad to be back in the house of God. God slowly began to clean my life up. And I said all that to say this. I, I'm thankful when souls get saved. But I'll tell you what really floats my boat. Is when people get victory over the world. Because God started cleaning my life up and giving me victory over some of the junk I was involved in. And God gave me victory over some of the junk I was listening to. And God gave me victory over some of the stuff that I was looking at and the places that I was going. And God cleaned my life up. Praise God. And, 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 and I really, really get excited when God gives people victory over sin and the devices of the world. I was, I was supposed to preach. I did preach. When I was pastoring over here in Jerseyville, I heard a preacher from Kentucky preach up here at Salem Baptist Church many years ago. They had Fishers and Men Fellowship, and, and I got to preach there. And he said, Brother Hart, come to Kentucky and preach revival for me. So I did. He said, bring your son Andrew with you when you come. I don't know why he wanted that, but I did. I didn't meet the, I didn't know this guy before. And so the other boys was in school. We had a Christian school over there. And so Mrs. Hart stayed back. And, and, and got the boys in school. So me and Andrew, I had to borrow a car so that she could take the boys to school. I had to borrow a car to drive to Kentucky to preach at revival meeting. I'm driving in Kentucky. Come on now, I'm from corn and bean country. I'm from on the, just like this on the other side of Peoria. And the sun is going down. Andrew can't see. He's as blind as can be. But I say out loud while the sun's going down, I'm looking at the fields and I said, Andrew, their corn crop is looking terrible. So I drive on through Kentucky and get to the pastor's house where I'm staying. And we're just chit-chatting, talking back and forth. And I said, preacher, I said, I'm raised in corn and bean country. I'm not a farmer, but I, I was raised in the middle of that stuff. I said, y'all's corn crop looking pretty rough. He started laughing. He said, preacher, that ain't corn. That's tobacco. I, I ain't never seen tobacco growing in the field before. That's lousy looking corn to me. So I'm just, I'm just preaching in that meeting just like I'm preaching to you. <laughs> Pretty soon a man in the middle of the service on the back row gets up and leaves. Oh, no. I've been asked to come in here and preach, and I made that guy mad. Pretty soon he came back in tobacco country with an armload of cartons of cigarettes. He had gone out to his car and gotten his cigarette and walked forward and dumped them on the altar and stood up with tears in his eyes and said, Church, pray for me. i got to get victory over this. Oh, yeah, hallelujah. I like that kind of stuff, amen. I like it because people get right, and I like looking at the pastor's face because the pastor looks at that stuff and says, What am I going to do with this stuff? Amen. I, I'm just ornery that way. Amen. But you can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because they get over the victory that God once gave them in their life. And now all of a sudden, some of those devices and sins and habits start sneaking back into their life. You can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because they get over the victory. You can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because they're just not as dedicated to God as they used to be. Just not as dedicated as they used to be. You've heard the story. I'm not going to dwell on it. Start missing here and start missing there in the house of God. 
Oh, it's just a service or two. Yeah, and that leads to another one, leads to another one, leads to another one, and then they're completely out. Just not as dedicated. Got some area of service in the house of God, and they're not faithful to it. Ladies and gentlemen, the most basic qualification in the life of a Christian and to serve God is faithfulness. Faithfulness. You're going to have to be faithful in order, in order to be right with God and to, and to keep that place of service. You're going to have to be faithful. What, 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 can you do? what can you do with an unfaithful Sunday school teacher? I got the answer. Nothing. Because you don't know if they're going to be there or not. I'm not picking on our sister. I appreciate what she does. What can you do with an unfaithful piano player? Nothing. Because you don't know if they're going to be there or not. What can you do with an unfaithful usher? Nothing. Because you don't know if they're going to be there or not. The most basic requirement in Christian life and service is just being faithful. But you can tell people wander too far from Calvary because they're not as dedicated, not as faithful as what they used, used to be. You wouldn't miss for nothing. Used to be that if your church even had a women's missionary society, some of the men tried to show up because they just wanted to go to church. Hallelujah. Amen. But you can tell when a person wanders too far because they stop losing their dedication. Not only that, you can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because they don't have proper attitude in service. They got to go to church. They don't get to go to church. You know, come on now. We, we've all had children. We've had children. We told our kids when they was young, get in there and clean that room. And you know how they responded. And they did what we told them to do, but they didn't do it with the right attitude. Some people have B.O., that's body odor. Some people have B.A., that's bad attitude. And they do what they're supposed to, but they don't do it with the right attitude. Jesus Christ went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down. You can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because they don't have proper attitude. We, we could talk about holiness. You can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because they lose their holiness. Brother Harden, are you a holiness preacher? I am. I am. A holy God gave us a holy Bible, put the Holy Spirit within, and expects us to live a holy life. Amen. It'll be over after Friday night, folks. Cheer up. It, 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 this is just short-lived. Amen. Your, your pastor will come back and praise. He's a nicer guy than me. Better preacher than me. It'll, it'll be over next Sunday. Come back. Amen. Amen. We could talk about meeting the demands of God. A number of years ago, I was up when I was in Peoria. I'm from that area. I was listening to a so-called Christian radio station, and they had a call-in program, you know, like they do sometimes, and some gal got on there and said, well, I used to go to a Baptist church, but I don't go to a Baptist church anymore. I go to a Bible church, because at the Baptist church, I got to do this, and I got to do that, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. And I thought, bless your little heart. I feel sorry for people that the only thing they can see out of Christianity is a bunch of do's and don'ts. Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. Christianity is a relationship with a person, and that person's name is Jesus Christ. I am, this, this coming May 17th, a married man for 43 years. I am married to this precious lady right here, and because I'm married, there's some things that I do. You know what I do? I travel, and she goes with me, and I stop at every Cato's we pass. That's what I do. Every Cato's. She went to Cato's yesterday. 
on the other side of Decatur. I've been to every Cato's from Fulton, Mississippi to the Wisconsin border. There is nothing for a man to do at Cato's. I am going to open a gun shop beside every Cato's in America to give husbands something to do while their wives go in Cato's. I'm making that sound real bad. But listen, I don't care. I don't, I don't mind stopping at Cato's. Me and Andrew sit in the car. She can take all the time she wants to. Well, she said, I got, I got a little bit of money. If I need a little bit more, can I put it uh, on, the, on the debit card? Yeah, I don't care. That's fine. Because if she spends more money, that's more bullet money for me. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's a wonderful life. And so I don't care. There's things I do because I'm married. There's things I don't do. I don't, I don't let ladies that's not my wife ride in the car with me. I don't do that. Art, you mean it's one night after church, it's raining, and I have a flat tire, and I'm along the side of the road. You're not going to stop and pick me up? Nope. Now, I might stand out in the rain and give you my car, but I'm not, I'm not, getting, in, I'm not getting in a car with somebody that I'm not married, another lady that I'm not married. I'm not going to do that. That's just something that I don't do. I'm not alone in a building or in a room with another woman that's not my wife. Why, don't you trust her? No, I don't trust me. Flesh is flesh. I don't trust her. I don't trust me. I'm not going to allow that to happen. Some of you ladies look at me and say, oh, what's weird with this guy? But no, that's just something I don't do. But listen, because I'm married, I don't say, oh, pfft. I'm married. I've got to go to Cato's. I'm married, so I can't let strange women in my car. If I wasn't married, I could let weird women in my car with me. I don't live my life talking about all the do's and don'ts of marriage. I'm thrilled to be married because it's a relationship with a person, that precious lady there. And it's the same way in Christianity, my dear friend. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a relationship with a person. And when you have a right relationship with that person, there's some things you will do. There's some things you won't do. But you can tell when a person wanders too far from Calvary because that's all they can see out of Christianity is a bunch of do's and don'ts. Yeah, as they wandered away from Calvary, I wish it would have affected them spiritually and they would have got saved. I wonder if it didn't affect them emotionally. But as they wandered away from Calvary, they got over some of the things they saw that day. And I've learned, my dear friend, that there's people that have been saved and they don't need to get born again and again and again and again and again. I'm not preaching that. I'm just simply saying the time has gone by and me and you, us and y'all, Ewans, we've gotten over some of the things that Jesus Christ our Savior has done for us. And we've wandered too far from Calvary. And you and me just need to get back in that air around Calvary. Get fresh. Get close. Get rid of the coldness. Get a passion. Get a zeal for God and the things of God once again. Isn't that what these meetings are all about for us to get close with God once again like even we used to be isn't that what these meetings are all about not only for people to get close once again but for us to grow in our Christian life and mature and go on and let God do a work in us so that he can do a work through us if we just get honest with ourselves and get honest with our Savior. There's some children of God that need to confess to the Lord, Lord, I've gotten cold. 
I've gotten mechanical. I'm just going through the motions. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. But it's not real. I don't have that passion. I don't have that zeal like I used to. And I come before you this morning confessing it for what it is, sin, and ask you to forgive me and warm my heart and give me that passion, that hunger, and that thirst for you once again. And then, no doubt there's some folks that have never been to Calvary by faith. You've never been born again. You've never been saved. You don't know what I'm talking about, about being cold and mechanical because you don't know him. Well, may I, may I invite you today? That in a little while when we have an invitation that you slip out of your seat and if, and if you're a gentleman, man or lady, and the pastor will direct you, come to the pastor and say, listen, get me to God. I'm lost. I'm not saved. I've never been born again. My life is not real. I'm faking it, and I want to be saved. And so we're going to trust and expect saints of God to set the example at the invitation time. Because church... How can, we, how can we ever expect lost people to come to an altar if saved people don't set the example? And so we're going to trust and expect saints of God to get honest with themselves and honest with them Savior and find a place around the front pews and the altars and do business with the Lord, whether it's related to the message or something completely unrelated to the message. Maybe you've got a heavy burden that you'd like to bring to the altar at the local Baptist church house and pray over. And then while saints of God are setting the example, we'll trust the Spirit of God to prompt lost people. Motivate them to step out of their seat and come forward. Get the pastor's attention. Say, preacher, I need to talk to somebody about my soul. I dare say that if you're a gentleman, he'll get another gentleman. If you're a lady, he'll get another lady to show you from the word of God how you can know for sure that you have a home in heaven. May we stand together.